Uh, I want to preface my remarks this morning by saying that uh, uh, I had been asked to preach at Heartland. Um, initially, I was going to preach in early December, and then uh, Mark Bell, the PCA pastor who's arranging all these things, um, texted me and said, I've got a, a special guest coming in from Wales, and uh, I want him to preach on the date that you were originally supposed to preach on, so can you preach on January 3rd? And I said, sure, which means I got back here, and on New Year's Day, I had to come in and write a sermon, because he gave me, he didn't let me, they don't let me preach on whatever I want, they're working through a passage of scripture, so I got this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and after I had written the sermon on Monday and Tuesday, I said, you know what, this will work for Sunday too, so uh, I'm not picking on anybody, I'm not discombobulated in any way, uh, if, uh, if the word hits your heart, let it hit your heart, if it doesn't. Uh, don't worry about it. Um, but our text this morning then is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And the church in Corinth was a problem child. And uh, Paul spent a lot of time on it, a lot of energy. And in chapter 3 he writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers." You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work survives that anyone has built on the foundation, I'm sorry, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Father, the, the, the words of the, the song we just sang remind us of an important truth, for in that passage in John 6, you spoke truth and many stopped following you because they didn't like it. And then you turned to your apostles, your disciples, and said, you want to go away too? And in truth, some of them might have wanted to but they didn't. 
because they recognized even an unwelcome truth is still true. And they said, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So, Father, keep us from the foul trap of thinking that popularity is a sign of success in the gospel economy. For you yourself were popular for a while. And everybody turned on you in the end. And yet you didn't change one bit. Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Amen. Amen. So the the church at Corinth um, was probably Paul's biggest headache. The church at Galatia probably was in second place for that title. But for some reason, this church, among all the other churches, was just a persistent problem child. Uh, Perhaps it was because all of her members were drawn from the population of the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was widely recognized, even among the pagans uh, in great Greco-Roman culture, to be particularly wicked and dissolute. There was actually a a, a word that uh, the pagans used for somebody that had fallen into a moral sewer, and it was Corinthiadzomai, to become a Corinthian. And so this is the people who God saved his people out of. And they were a filthy people. I think San Francisco on Gay Pride Day or something like that. Perhaps it was because of certain individuals, uh, certain personalities who were influential in the congregation, and yet they were not influential for the good. Perhaps it was a defect in leadership, failure to educate, a failure to lead by example, a failure to set the proper tone, a failure to exercise church discipline, which we've been talking about in the context of the Heidelberg Catechism. Likely, it was some uh, combination, rather, of all of the above, as it often is today. You know, it takes very little to set events in motion that wreck a church. It takes a lot of patient labor to build one. And it takes even more patient labor to rebuild one after it has been wrecked. And perhaps it would be good from time to time to think about your own behavior. Are you helping the church to flourish with your conduct and your words and your actions? Are you sitting there like a lump, consuming without contributing? Are you an active detriment to your church's well-being? Or are you contributing to the well-being of the church? Well, whatever the the discrete sources or source or sources of the problems that that were in uh, Corinth, in the Corinthian church, Paul in this passage identifies the issue behind the issue, and that is Christian maturity. And I want us to see this morning, first of all, a problem to be addressed. Second of all, I want us to see a pattern to be followed. And third of all, I want us to see a promise to keep in mind. First, the the problem to be addressed. Paul identifies this problem in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. And the problem is one of spiritual immaturity. He says in verse 1 that he cannot uh, talk to them, deal with them as spiritual people 
but as people of the flesh. And in verse 2, he puts it in terms of the food of infancy, namely milk, and the food of adulthood, which is meat. As I said before, the, the Corinthian church was beset by problems. There was heterosexual and homosexual sin among the people of God. There was a man who was living in sin with his stepmother. There was a spirit of competitiveness. There was very little love. There was a lot of conflict. There was jealousy. There was rivalry. There was division. The rich were lording it over the poor, and the poor were resenting the rich. There was a great deal of boasting about all of their spiritual gifts, but very little appreciation of the God-ordained differences in gifts, which are differences also in function and differences in ministry. Some of this had even manifested itself as a criticism of the Apostle Paul and as doubts about his credentials as an apostle. Now, Paul uses a term here and throughout his letters that has prompted a lot of debate in the history of the church. And that term is sarks. Uh, it's where we get our English word sarcophagus. Sarcophagus, they thought that the limestone ate flesh, so sarks flesh, phago, to eat. Uh, in the Greek, uh, it's often simply uh, uh, just rendered in English as the flesh. And it's very difficult sometimes for translators to translate this word into English in a way that captures the nuances that Paul is giving it and the range of meaning that the word has in various passages. Now, at its simplest and most basic form, I think the word flesh simply means the natural human abilities. And in that sense, the flesh is not evil. It is, however, weak. You might remember that Jesus, uh, when he was asking his disciples to pray for him, diagnosed a condition. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's not capable of much on its own. And the reason that it's not capable of much on its own is because it was never designed by God to function on its own. Rather, it was designed to function in constant cooperation with the power of God, which is imparted into it continually by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus means when he says that rivers of living water will flow out of your, in the King James Version, the belly, the, the region of, of your body, the, 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 the Greeks understood to be the seat of the emotions and, and, and the passions. He said, a river of living water will flow out of you. And that's because a river of living water is flowing into you before it flows out of you. And that's the Holy Spirit. So that's how we were designed to function. Uh, and that is really the significance of the fall of Adam and Eve. Our first parents unplugged themselves from the power of God. They were left on their own. And I, uh, as I've said before, suspect that unplugging from God radically altered their physical appearance. Um, have you ever wondered why Adam and Eve did not notice each other's nakedness and their own nakedness before the fall? I suspect it's because before the fall, they actually literally glowed. They were emanating light. Now, all throughout the Bible, both angelic beings and glorified human beings, when we see them, are usually depicted as shining very brightly. And that shining is called glory. The Lord himself, when he appears, 
appears in an even greater shining, in a greater glory. As a matter of fact, we're told that God himself dwells in inapproachable light. And the created beings who are in proper and full union with God reflect his glory in exactly the same way that the moon shines by reflecting the light of the sun. And I think that Adam and Eve were so connected with God before the fall that they just radiated his glory. And when they sinned, the lights went out, so to speak. When your salvation is completed, either at your death or if we're still alive during that time at the event at the end of days, which is commonly called the rapture, you will enter into a state which the Bible calls in Romans chapter 8, glorification. Listen to how the Bible describes this. It, all the way back in Daniel, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I think we should take that literally. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 43 that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. I think that we should take that quite literally. Now, when our lights went out, so to speak, we were left on our own resources in a world that suddenly became exponentially more dangerous. Now there's death, now there's sin, now there's pain, now there's disease, now there's danger, and there's danger around every corner. Scarcity was introduced. I've talked about this before. Work became much harder because God had cursed work and had withheld even more of his blessing, particularly on the work of Adam. And guys, you know how this is, right? You know what it is to, to, to live the curse of Adam. I, my wife wanted something simple the other day. She decided that the dryer vent might be plugged up and she was because it wasn't drying the clothes properly and, and she was convinced that the, the vent was plugged with lint and, she, and I, I didn't think that was it. And, and uh, so she kept, she was like sending me emails and sending me like stuff, videos from Instagram about dryer vents being plugged up and all that. And please, you know, so she was really concerned about it. So finally, one day, the, I think it was Monday, um, she, I'm sitting there at the breakfast table drinking my coffee and she takes a load out of the washer and she's like, dang it, it's not dry again. I'm like, all right, I'm going to deal with this right now. Now you would think that just inspecting a dryer vent and cleaning anything out that needed to be cleaned out and then putting it back would be what, a five minute job, a 10 minute job? No, not in the world of thorns and thistles. It was a two hour job and involved two trips to Home Depot and $50, right? And I told her, I said, the work demons are mad because they haven't gotten their bloody sacrifice. There's a bloody sacrifice in every job I do. I have to cut myself and bleed. And I didn't do it that time. I'm holding all the sheet metal little things, you know, to make the, the elbows and all that. I'm like, oh, here comes the bloody sacrifice. It never happens. And that's how work is. Because God cursed work. And in particular, he cursed the work of Adam and all of Adam's sons. As things unfolded, strangers became a threat or a potential threat. We know from Genesis 1 through 6 that great violence was unleashed on the earth 
because our fears and our appetites and our desires became disordered and they became too strong for us to manage. And all of this was as a result of trying to get by on insufficient resources. And because of this, in this sense, the flesh is constantly inclined to evil. Because the flesh is, will do whatever it, needs, it thinks it needs to do to get by. And we became self-obsessed and self-aggrandizing, trying to be self-sufficient. When Jesus brings salvation to us, he reconnects us at a vital level to God and to his power by giving us the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And then we don't have to be concerned any longer about participating in the struggle that all the other lost souls in this world are enmeshed in and totally obsessed by. We don't need to worry about anything if we belong to Jesus and his kingdom. We don't need to worry about what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear. We don't even need to worry about those who might even go so far as to kill our bodies. Instead, we're told that if we simply seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of the kingdom of God, that everything that we need will be provided for us and we don't need to live in worry and in fear because my God says Paul in Philippians 5, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. All that we need will be provided. And so, we don't have to be self-obsessed anymore. We don't have to be dominated by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. But these Corinthians, though they were spiritual men and women in the sense that they had been born again, and though they had a duty to live as though God was real and he had told them the truth and he would keep his promises to them, and they had that ability because they had a measure of the Spirit's gifting and power. Paul acknowledged that. He said, you Corinthians do not come behind, in the words of the old King James Version, in any spiritual gift. In other words, you're not lacking any spiritual gift. The problem is not giftedness. The problem is trust. It's interesting, there's a, there's a, a lot of Christians who think when they see extraordinary spiritual gifts that the person who's manifesting them must be a holy person. It's not true. On the authority of Jesus, it's not true. Many will come to me on that last day, he said, and say, Lord, in your name we cast out demons and did many wonderful works. And he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Giftedness is not the sign of discipleship. Now, disciples have gifts, but giftedness is not the sign of discipleship. And these people were kind of trying to straddle two worlds. They were living as though God wasn't there and they were on their own. In other words, they were living just like the people of the world. They were living fleshly. One commentator put it this way. It was not merely a matter of having the Spirit, but rather a matter of having the Spirit in charge. They were not living surrendered lives. They were still trying to run their life. 
and they were doing a very bad job of it, and they were messing up the church. And as a consequence, they behaved, even though they were believers, they behaved as functional unbelievers. They were fleshly, not spiritual. Now, Paul had spent one and a half years at Corinth establishing the church and teaching the church after it was established, and then he left, and he writes this letter about three years after he had left the church, and so some of these Christians had been Christians for four and a half years at this point, and he says to them, your behavior is inexcusable. You are like adults who only eat baby food. In other words, you've been Christ's long enough that if you were pursuing Jesus as you ought, you ought to be more grown up. Say, do you know that the mere lapse of time does not bring about Christian maturity? I encounter people all the time who've been professing Christians for years, for even decades, and yet they are still spiritual babies. They're filled with a need to aggrandize themselves or to seek the approval of human beings or to be thought well of or to do some project to make somebody happy. They're not, they're not obsessed with Jesus and what Jesus wants them to do. They're obsessed with themselves and the relationships around them. And when you cross them, they get angry. When you don't recognize all that they've done, they get angry. Let me ask you this morning, who are you working for? Are you working so that everybody in the church will go, so good, you're so good? Or are you working so that Jesus goes, well done, my good and faithful servant? Here's how you know. If people don't recognize you when you've done your work, and you get mad because they're not going, good job, then you're not working for Jesus. You're working for you. Go read your Bibles. Salvation is not by your efforts. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works, so that no man can boast. But once you are saved, growing in holiness, growing in maturity, growing in grace requires effort. Just go to 2 Peter chapter 1, which is our call to worship, and look at what Peter tells his readers to do. And you will notice that in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, it says that we have to, quote, make every effort to start adding a list of good things to our spiritual life. That's the problem to be addressed, one of spiritual immaturity. Secondly, and more briefly, there's the pattern to be followed. Some in the congregation in Corinth were saying, I follow Paul. Others were saying, well, I follow Apollos. And in another chapter, some of the smug, smarty pants ones, and you all know those types, they were the ones who go, well, I just follow Jesus. I guess the rest of you are a mess. And Paul says, look, um, what is Paul? What is Apollos? Notice he doesn't say who, like he's trying to build up a a reputation or something like this. He says, what? What are these people? What are we, he says? We are just servants. Just servants. We are diakonoi. That's where we get our words deacons. We're just servants. It's interesting that Paul is actually an apostle. 
an apostle is far higher than someone like Apollos. Apollos was probably an, a, a class of ministry in the New Testament known as an evangelist. We, we know Philip was Philip the evangelist. And Apollos was probably uh, commissioned by the church to be an evangelist. But Paul doesn't say, <laughs> guys, look, I'm an apostle. And, and Apollos is less than me. So you should stop following Apollos and start giving me your allegiance. No, instead he points to Christ. And he says, we're just servants of Christ through whom you believe. Furthermore, they were servants, says Paul, who had different jobs. He says, I, I planted. And, and, and then Apollos watered. Both of those are crucial, aren't they? In an arid climate, planting without watering will just cause the plant to die if the seed even germinates at all. Watering without planting is stupid. It's just making a muddy mess for no reason and, and wasting resources. Both planting and watering are necessary, but they are not sufficient. God must give the increase. And God condescends in the ordinary course of things to grant human beings the privilege of helping him bring his purposes about. Think about that for a minute. God doesn't need you. But he wants you. He's not sitting around going, now who can I get for this job? Who can I sucker into this thing and go, gotcha? Who can I make an elder? Who can I make a deacon? Who can I make a servant in the kitchen? Now, boy, once we've got them, we'll guilt them into staying there. He doesn't say that. Paul's like, I don't need any of this to make my plans work. I'm sovereign. I can speak and the universe starts to exist. God calls you to these things because he wants to work with you and walk together with you in your work. He wants to take your efforts and magnify them and do things that are so wonderful that everybody will look and say, how in the world did that result come from this person's effort? And this person will say, not I, but Christ in me. God must give the increase. And God condescends in the ordinary course of things to grant human beings the privilege of bringing his purposes about. And in this way, we become, it's not clear in the ESV, it's clear in other English versions, it's very clear in the Greek, we become co-laborers with each other and with God. We're working with God. Now that's just mind-blowing to me. If I, if, I, if I said to you, yeah, I'm... I'm uh, I'm working with the president on this project. You'd be like, whoa, who are you? You're working with the president of the United States on this project? You must be somebody important. Well, who's the president? He's just a servant. I'm not sure he's a servant of, but he's just a servant. And God says, I'm the emperor of the universe. I want you to work with me on this project. God has a work for you, which none but you can do. And he has prepared those works in advance for you to walk in. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. And they are a great gift to you. 
because they are an opportunity for your life to count and to count for much. You know, I don't know if you're this way or not, but I am haunted and have been almost my whole life, haunted, driven by the idea that when I get to my life, I will be afraid that I will say it didn't make any difference that I was here. I lived, I died, nothing happened. No, I want my life to count. And if my life could count for something eternal rather than something which will pass away in this fading world, even better. And God says, hey, (laughs) that's my plan for you. Here are the works that I have prepared in advance for you to walk in. This is how you will build up heavenly treasure. This is how you will clothe yourself in the kingdom. The, the, the robes, it says in Revelation, are the righteous deeds of the saints. You will be, you're, you're creating your wardrobe. Every time you show up for a wana, it may not feel like it when you're putting little goldfish in a cup or something like that, but you are knitting yourself. You are sewing yourself amazing clothing in the kingdom, as long as you're doing it for Jesus and not for you. These works may not be glamorous. Planting is dirty, backbreaking work. You may not get to see much fruit from your labors, and that may cause you to be a little downcast. Paul didn't. Paul planted and he moved on without seeing the mature fruit. But what Paul did was a work of the Lord, which was crucial in the plan of God, and so he just threw himself into it. But at the same time, Paul knew that no human effort could produce spiritual fruit. God has to give the increase. Some of you are planters. It seems to be my lot in life that I'm a planter. My wife and I have joked for years that the best thing I can do is start a ministry and get it off the ground and then hand it to somebody else and leave. It always flourishes. It flourishes because I'm good at building a foundation. I'm good at first principles. I'm good at, at tearing things down and going, now, let's do this. Now, let's do this. This needs to happen. And I build something. And then other people come along. And they build on top of it. And something amazing happens. That's my legacy at at the church in Sturgis. Uh, 13 years I labored there. And when I left, we had a half a million bucks in the bank. The plans were drawn for a new building. And uh, all the elders were trained and all the deacons were trained. And everybody understood what the church was about. And they understood our theology. And I walked away and they brought in a new guy. And boom. The whole thing exploded. Now their youth group is so big they have to meet at the community center because there's not room in the new church building. I'm jealous. (laughs) I want that. And when I went back a few years ago, the pastor said from the pulpit, Brian, I want to thank you. You made my job easy. All I had to do was come in here and get to know everybody and then let the things go that you had put in place. And here we are. You know, I went back to the basement of the church building where I spent 13 years of my life is still there. And I could walk in there and I could see the outlines on the floor where this was my office. This was the bathroom. This was the kitchen. It's now a basketball court. It's kind of cut into the side of a hill. It was a walkout. And, uh, and I look at that and I think, 
It's a small hole, really. And I spent 13 years of my life in this little square right here. And, and now I look and there's this great big building full of people. A lot of them I don't even know. I'm a planter. I'm a foundation builder. That means I don't get to see the increase except at a distance. Most of the time, it seems like. And that was Paul's lot too. Some of you are planters. Some of you are the teachers of young children. And you are planting seeds that will not bear fruit for years. And you may never see them. These children may leave and go who knows where. But if you planted the seeds and another came along and faithfully watered, God will give that increase. And you, will, you may not know about it until you get to heaven. Some of you are are those who come along and you build on what has been planted and you get to be the successful person. And, uh, and everybody looks at you and goes, wow, this pastor did it. Don't get too full of yourself. Don't get full of yourself. You just came along at the right time on, on the foundation that somebody else had, had made and you were able to do something in the economy of the Lord with his help that produced good results. And don't you dare go, look at what I did. That's probably why God won't let me have the increase. Because I'd look at that and go, <laughs> look what I did. You know, because I'm an idiot like that. That's why I don't want you telling me nice things about me. Because I'd be like eating that up. You wouldn't be able to get my head out the door. Don't get jealous of other servants who have different tasks than you. Don't doubt the value of the task that God called you to. Just work hard. Just do good work. Just rest when it's time to rest. And trust God. Finally and briefly, I'm, I'm going to stray a little bit here. Um, in verse 9, Paul shifts from the metaphor of agriculture to that of constructing a building. And, and he says the people of God are God's building, God's temple. And so God goes, or Paul rather goes from being a, a farmer's helper who plants to a skilled master builder who lays a foundation that is perfectly level and perfectly plumb. And this context gives us our final point. There's a promise to keep in mind. He says, I laid the foundation. Someone else is building on it. And some of that work is well done, and it's done with gold and silver and costly stones. Some of it is poorly done, and it's done with wood and hay and straw. Now, you can make quite an impressive edifice pretty quickly with some wood and some hay and some straw. It'll look big. Oh, look what we built. Look at our giant house of stubble. And he says, one day, God is going to test your work. And one day, he's going to test it with fire. And the fire will disclose the quality of your work. Think about all the things, all the ministries, all the things that are built in a church. And how little it takes for it all to evaporate. Well, that's not even the trial by fire. That's just a trial by worldly circumstances. I, I was talking to a, a pastor the other day. He was a, a, in the Reformed Church in America, the Dutch Reformed Church. And I was asking him about his seminary education. And he said, well, I did this and this. And, and he said, then I went out and I was actually at the Crystal Cathedral in, in California for a period of time doing like an internship. Now, I, I don't know how many of you remember Robert Schuller and the Crystal Cathedral. It was this giant monstrosity of a glass building that 
that Schuler was able to build with his pop psychology mixed with Christian stuff, and uh, very impressive. And now it's a, I, well, not, I think it's tacky. I always thought it was tacky, but anyway. Um, now it's just tacky and empty. Great crowds came. And it's of no significance whatsoever now. Bankrupt, empty, people fighting with each other about the legacy. Lawsuits, splits, wood, hay, and stubble. Every bit of it. God is going to test your works one day. And you will be rewarded or else you will forfeit reward based on the results. And while this specifically applies to what you as a believer do for Christ within the context of the church, I think that it also has application for other areas of your life. Whatever you do, you are to do as unto the Lord. If you're a teacher, you teach for the Lord. If you're a student, you study for the Lord. If you're a mechanic, you turn wrenches for the Lord. Whatever it is you do, if you're an accountant or a salesman, you sell for the Lord. And you do your best. Your reputation is on the line. And more importantly, Christ's reputation is on the line. Because you are his authorized representative. Christ's reputation is on the line through you, through how you speak, through how you act, through what you will and will not do, for the kindness you show or don't show, the wise words you speak or don't speak. Do not bring reproach on the name of Christ by laziness, by dishonesty, by corner cutting, by false promises or lies or stealing or cheating or nasty behavior. Do not bring the reproach on Christ's name that comes from your bad actions. God is watching, and your works will be tried with fire, and you will be evaluated on the results. I'm going to close with a poem. It comes from the 19th century. A man from London, and he writes this. I watched them tearing a building down, a gang of men in a busy town. With a yo-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and a sidewall fell. I asked the foreman, are these men skilled, the kind you'd hire if you wanted to build? He just laughed and he said, why, no, indeed. Just common labor is all I need. They can easily wreck in a day or two what builders have taken years to do. And I thought to myself as I went my way, which of these two roles have I tried to play? Am I a builder who works with care, measuring life by the rule and square? Or am I a wrecker who walks the town, content with the labor of tearing down? Some people, you give them a pile of bricks, they'll make a city. Some people, you give them a city, and they'll make a pile of bricks. Which one are you going to be? Amen.